is my, uh, I guess, my other passion in life, out in the countryside, um, in the middle of nowhere, yeah, just spending hours out on the trails, which is what I love to do. So Alice and I, uh, we've been part of the NLCC family since we moved over to Fording Bridge, which was actually in 2013, so about 10 years now. Um, and obviously we've seen the church grow and evolve into where we are today, so one church over three sites. Um, and yeah, it's been, it's been great. When we started at Fording Bridge, there was probably about 20 of us there, um, and yeah, we've just gone from strength to sh- strength to strength. So today we're going to be looking at Mark. Uh, we're carrying on our series in Mark, um, and specifically we're going to look at Mark chapter 9 and verses 2 to 13, and um, we'll read through that in a, in a few moments. So firstly, we're going to recap uh, where we left it a couple of weeks ago. So uh, we didn't touch on it last week because uh, we were welcoming Mark and Debs as, a, uh, as the elders all together over at Fording Bridge. So when we left the passage two weeks ago, Jesus had just told the disciples that he was going to be killed. And we read that Mark had told the disciples this plainly in plain speak. He didn't sugarcoat it. um, and, And he said it would be because he would be despised. He would be spat on and he would be killed. And then he told them that he would rise again after three days. But the disciples were just men, you know, like us. They focused on the bad and not on the good. And they couldn't, and maybe they just didn't believe that Jesus himself could be killed and then rise again three days later. And they were completely blindsided by this. And that's where we're going to pick up the passage now. So let's read together. Mark chapter 9, verses 2 to 13. And it's entitled The Transfiguration. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses. And they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down from the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning, what's this rising from the dead might mean? And they asked him, why did the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. So we read that six days had passed since Jesus had broken that news. And he knows 
that the disciples are not in the same frame of mind that they once were. He knows that they need some encouragement and he knows that they are in a low place. And Jesus takes three of the disciples with him to a mountain to pray. So within the Bible, mountains tend to have a big significance. When we think of mountains, we think of the significant events there. Abraham was sent up a mountain to sacrifice his son. Spoiler alert, he didn't sacrifice his son. Another offering was provided. We've got Moses and the burning bush. We've got Moses and the Ten Commandments. And then on the same mountain years later, God spoke to and revealed his presence to Elijah. So here they are, the disciples going up a mountain with Jesus, and this is a big deal. So let's have a look. Why did he take James, John, and Peter with him? I had a look in the passage, and uh, I like what Jackie said early, earlier, ponderings. I'm not a theologian. Um, as I said, I'm a builder. Um, so ponderings. And this is, you know, this is what, where I came, my conclusion was. Jesus chose his disciples at, right at the beginning, and he also chose his inner circle of disciples. And Jesus knew of the events that were about to unfold on that mountain, and he knew of his disciples who would benefit most from what they would witness. So looking at Peter, he had already confessed that Jesus is the Messiah back in Mark chapter 8. And with what's about to happen, Jesus can now reaffirm this belief And Peter's character shows that he's fallible. He's impetuous, as we'll see later on. But, and it is a big but, he emerges as the greatest evangelizer from that group of disciples. And then he took James and John. They're brothers, and they're close. But again, their nature is that that they're slightly impetuous, but they are bold in their faith. So bold, in fact, that James is the first of the disciples to be martyred for his faith. And what he was about to see must have reinforced this to him. And John, he was a loyal disciple. And he was the disciple who was given the vision of the end times that we have in the book of the Revelation. So without John seeing the true magnificence of Jesus, his book of Revelation may not have had the same magnitude. John knew firsthand that all that he saw in his visions was possible by what he had witnessed on that mountain. So Jesus had chosen the disciples who would join him. And this is the interesting bit now. We then read that whilst on the mountain, Jesus became transfigured before them. His clothes became whiter than any bleach could make them. So I had to look at what transfigured means. Um, And so I took it that, and and this is how it is, this isn't God's glory shining through Jesus. This isn't God's power just radiating off him like the sun may reflect off a bold man's head. This is a change from the inside out. Now, I found it useful to learn that you can be transfigured or there's a masquerade. And a masquerade is, is a change of the outward appearance and a change of your character. So actors spend their life masquerading, but not really the person that they are portraying. 
So Daniel Craig isn't really James Bond. Daniel Craig pretends to be a spy. You know, and when people play computer games, they pretend to be the character that they're playing. So they're masquerading as someone else. But Jesus here, he was transfigured. He was transformed. He was changed from the inside out. But, and this is the important bit here, he wasn't throwing off some clothes or his human shell. Jesus was born as a man through Mary. He was fully man and he was fully God. He wasn't a bit of one and a bit of the other. So Jesus is both man and God. And it's not possible for Jesus to be one without the other. So when we looked at Genesis, we read that God created man in his own image. It therefore follows that Jesus, being the son of God, would also be a man. He is both man and God. And he can't remove his humanity. He equally can't remove his godliness. And this is a theme which can be followed throughout Scripture. So in Daniel, in chapter 7, and I'm just going to read it to you. And in verses 13 and 14, we read this. This is a vision of Daniel. In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nation and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Jesus described here exactly as the disciples see him, both man and God. The son of man in the clouds, radiating the presence of God. And the presence of God being so clear and obvious that the disciples are shaken to their core. So Daniel was prophesying here what we now know to be true. And the disciples are in a privileged position of being able to have a glimpse of heaven and see Jesus how he will be when he is in heaven, seated at the right hand of his father. And then Jesus represents us to God and vice versa, he represents God to us. So there's a couple of passages in Hebrews which i just read out to you. So Hebrews 4 and verses 14 to 15. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are. Yet he did not sin. So from this passage in Hebrews, we learn that, as we know, Jesus came to earth as a man and he experienced everything we do and is able to empathize with with us. We can relate to him because he is relatable. He's had the experiences that we have had. He didn't come to earth as a rich man born into wealth and power. He came as a poor man, the son of a carpenter, so that we could relate to him. Then we also learn how Jesus represents God to us, following on in Hebrews, and that was verses 26 to 27. It says this, Such a high priest truly meets our need, one who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. 
Unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day. First for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once and for all when he offered himself. So the example that Jesus gave when he was on earth was that of God. After all, he was the son of God and he could set no other example for us. He is blameless, he is pure, and he is set apart and holy. And because of those things, and he's so full of love, he can do nothing but offer himself as a sacrifice for our sins. He wanted to die for us despite us not deserving it. And his love for us was so strong that he put himself on the cross for us. He literally took the bullet that we deserved. So that moment, that transfiguration, was showing Jesus in his fullness as both man and God. So as we move on, Jesus is there. He stood on the mountain. He's transfigured. He has got, he's there with his whites, whiter than Keith Chegwin and Daz could ever dream of making them. That's going to, yeah, might hit with some people, yeah. Um, he's joined by Moses and Elijah. But neither Moses or Elijah have, are transfigured because they cannot be. They're just men. So there's a clear indication here of the hierarchy of the situation. Jesus is at the top and then Moses and the Elijah. And all three are stood there and they're chatting. So what an amazing glimpse of heaven that is. So Moses and Elijah are there and they're standing beside Jesus. Jesus transfigured with the radiance of God. And this is, a, this is symbolic. This is symbolic for the disciples and it symbolizes that Jesus is the successor and he's fulfilled the prophecies and the law. He's now bringing a new covenant from God for all the people. So Moses and Elijah, when we read about them, they both had similar experience, as in, as in the two of them had exp similar experiences. They witnessed the voice of God appearing to them whilst they were on a mountain. And Moses' ministry started with a burning bush in Exodus chapter 3. And Elijah had started by hearing the still, small voice of God in Exodus chapter 19. And then both of them had suffered for their faith and they were stripped of all that they had. So they'd, been, they'd had that personal encounter with God, they'd been stripped of everything, and now here they are with Jesus and they are surrounded and shrouded in his glory. What an amazing encouragement that must have been to those disciples. It doesn't matter what happens here on earth, when you're with Jesus in glory, you'll be there, stood with him, chatting to him, and shrouded in his presence. The disciples, they've had a similar path to Moses and Elijah. They were called directly by Jesus to follow him. And they had been performing miracles through the power of the Holy Spirit. When they were sent out, they were healing uh, healing people and they were preaching you know God's word and they don't know this yet but we you know have the foresight of being able to read further on and they're about to endure hardships for the faith that they have and yet they're here they're getting a glimpse and an affirmation that what they're doing is correct it's following the correct path and they too one day will be able to stand in glory with Jesus and the same as 
for each, it's the same as for each of us here. As we know, we'll endure hardships and we will have struggles whilst we're here. This is normal, it's part of life. Hardships and struggles are part of everyday life. But if you know Jesus, your saviour, you'll be able to be with him in heaven and we will be stood with Elijah, Moses and Jesus. Another part that I found interesting here is, you know, Peter, James and John, they had never met Moses and Elijah. You know, their time frames were hundreds of years apart. They had no idea what Moses and Elijah looked like. There was no photos, there was no internet, you know, they had no idea. And yet here they are, they knew exactly who these men were that Jesus was stood with. I want us to take heart from this, that when we're in heaven, we'll know people, we will recognize people. And there'll be people that we haven't known on earth who we will know. You know, we'll know who John the Baptist is. We will know who the robber who died on the cross next to Jesus is. And those people that we do know and those people that we've had relationships with here on earth, we'll know them and we'll be able to recognize them as well. We won't be separated from them. So Moses and Elijah were there with Jesus and what was the purpose of that? And I think it was this. Firstly, they were there to represent the old law and the uh, prophets. Secondly, they're there as an encouragement to the disciples that death is not the end and that you will stand, with, stand in glory with Jesus. And thirdly, they're there to show that the disciples that Jesus is far greater than even Moses or Elijah. He is the Messiah and he represents the new law. So as we move on to verses five and six, we see Peter's character in, in full flow. As I mentioned, he's an impulsive character. His immediate reaction to what he's witnessing is that he needs to do something. He needs to say something and he needs to act in some way. And this is what he says. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. And then it says, he did not know what to say because he was terrified. So the first thing to note here, Peter has obviously forgotten immediately who he was talking to. He's saying rabbi, meaning teacher. And there's Jesus shrouded in his glory. A few days ago, Peter had been confessing that Jesus was the Messiah, and yet he's referring to him just as a teacher. He was majorly underplaying who Jesus was. And he's so terrified by what he's seen, so in awe of what he's seen, that he just reverted to type, he'd reverted to his character uh, instead of acknowledging Jesus as the Messiah. And Peter's character doesn't allow him to sit back and carefully consider his next step. He's that character that will charge ahead like a bull in a china shop. He's a speak first, think later. And we see this again later on in Mark when he denies Jesus three times without thinking about what he's saying. Now I want us to take the positives from this. Being impulsive is not a bad thing. 
Let's think of what other things that Peter's done. He stepped out of the boat and was the only one to do so, to walk towards Jesus on water. And Peter was walking on the water. His faith was there that he, that he could do it. He had acted in the fullness of that faith. But as soon as he stopped and questioned what he was doing, he sank. And it goes on. Peter, as we read further on, was one of the greatest evangelists of his time. And great evangelists have to be impulsive. They have to take the opportunity and they have to seize it. Others of us, and I put myself in this bracket, will sit back and we'll think about what to say, we'll make sure we get it right. And then by that point, the opportunity is gone. So Peter's character, you know, there's a time for being impulsive and there's a time for taking brave steps. And that's what Peter's character is. And on the flip side, there is also a time to be quiet and consider your next step carefully. And so it's with experience and asking God for the wisdom that we learn when to quickly step out of that boat without much thought and when to carefully consider our next move. So Peter's there and you kind of, he's panicked. And I can imagine his mind kind of whirring and thinking to, thinking to himself, what can I say to these three? I can't evangelize to them. They know everything, literally. Um, you know, I can't offer them a cup of tea. What, what do I do? And so his, his response is, I'll ask them if we should make a tent for them each. Now, uh, as I've alluded to, I'm a practical man. I looked at this and thought, why would he suggest such a thing? Practically speaking, a tent would provide shelter and cover so the stay could be elongated you know, on the mountain. It would be a base camp, a place to remember where Jesus, in his true glory, along with Moses and Elijah, all stood chatting. The downside here is that Peter is again putting all three, Moses, Elijah, and Jesus, on the same level. We already know that Peter has the knowledge that Jesus is far greater than Moses and Elijah. So let's... Going back in time, the greater the importance of the person you're building a tent for, the bigger and grander it should be. So, the simple analogy should be it should be two tents and a massive, huge, enormous temple. So then the second problem with Peter's suggestion is this. So mountains in themselves are great places. And they're used throughout scripture to mark significant events. However, the downside with a mountain is it's not a place of permanence for us. We work hard to climb up a mountain. Once we're up there, we can catch a glimpse of where we've come from and maybe where we're heading. The view at the top is amazing, but the air is thin. Animals and plants don't live this high up. Life is intended to be lived in the valleys and on the lower slopes. It's in these places that we grow physically and spiritually. We grow and learn through the hard times that are there. Mountains are great to go for, to for a rest and a recovery and encouragement. And we as Christians, we're not set aside to live on a mountain with an amazing view looking down on everyone else. Jesus' own example was to come from a place of glory in order that he may live in the valley 
then die and rise again to save us from our sins. Our end goal is to be living on that mountain with Jesus. At one stage, it will be a place of permanence for us. It will be a place of residence for us. It will be home. But this is not the time. So Peter's voiced this idea. And as he does so, he's surrounded in a cloud. And the cloud covers everyone. And then there's a great voice that comes down from the cloud. And it says, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And the cloud lifted and only Jesus remained. Again, I've emphasized the point, but this is, this is clear to the disciples that Jesus is not on the same level as Elijah and Moses. He is in a completely different class. He is the son of God. The voice there has just said it. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Again, the disciples would be encouraged from this. That here was God saying that what Jesus had been telling them about his death and suffering that was to come was true. And it was okay with God. It was correct. It was part of the plan. I can't think of any clearer example of God declaring that Jesus is his son. There was no intermediary here. God speaks directly to James John and Peter. God had spoken and been present through the clouds before in the Old Testament. It was God's presence in Exodus, in a pillar of cloud that led the Israelites out of Pharaoh's land. God's presence in a pillar of cloud that appeared before Aaron and the Israelites in the wilderness. And then when Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist, a voice from heaven declared, you are my son whom I love, with you I am well pleased. And again, the cloud, Jesus would ascend back into heaven in a cloud after his death and resurrection. So God appears in the clouds and it's one of the ways in which he directly communicates. And James, John and Peter would have known the Old Testament scriptures and here they were now having this first-hand experience of God appearing in a cloud and hearing the voice of God speaking directly to them. What an encouragement to them this must have been. They had heard directly that God, that Jesus was from God, that Jesus was the Messiah. He was the one who had been written about. So the disciples and Jesus, they came down from the mountain. And as they did, Jesus told them not to speak of what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. Then as soon as Jesus had risen from the dead it put more weight behind what James, John and Peter had seen. It was further clarification that Jesus was the Messiah. So the disciples, they did as what Jesus had commanded, but still they questioned what did Jesus mean by rising from the dead. They'd heard from Jesus himself about seven days previous that he's going to be taken away and killed and then rise again but they just didn't understand how this went hand in hand with what they had just seen in Jesus' transfiguration. I don't think they'd forgotten what Jesus had told them about his death and resurrection. They knew the scriptures, they knew the Messiah was coming, but they could not put the two pieces of information together. They still could not comprehend that the man that they had just seen transfigures, transfigured would allow himself to be subject to the power of man. They were questioning, as do we, what we know to be true. 
So we should take an encouragement from this as well, that even the disciples were blindsided by Jesus' magnitude. And it's good to question things and work out the answers for ourselves. It's not a sign of weakness or a lack of faith. It's a sign of maturity and wisdom. After all, we've been given our own minds and the choice to believe or not believe. And it was God's will for us to make our own choices and question things. And when I move on, I looked at verses 11 to 13. Jesus and the disciples discussing about Elijah coming first. And Jesus responding with the fact that Elijah had already come. I think we need to cross-reference this with the only other passage which details the transfiguration of Jesus, which is in Matthew And it's chapter 17. I'm not going to read it all out, 9 to 13. And in Matthew's gospel, we find the answer to the question, what does Jesus mean when he says, Elijah has come? And they did to him all as they wished. So in there, in that passage, Jesus is referring to John the Baptist as Elijah. He isn't referring to the Elijah that they had just seen on the mountain. John the Baptist was sent by God to point out Jesus to the world as the saviour. John the Baptist was ridiculed and even sent to his death by the Jewish leaders, just as was about to happen to Jesus. Jesus says it himself in this passage, in Matthew, that Elijah has already been, because of what Jesus says the disciples realise that they're talking about. Sorry, because of what Jesus says, the disciples realize that they're talking about John the Baptist. And then in this passage here, Peter, James, and John had a visual confirmation that Jesus was the Son of God. And then they heard an audible confirmation that Jesus was the Son of God. There could be no doubt now in, the mind, in their minds who Jesus was. So if I could ask the worship team just to come up. So I want to leave us this morning with some encouragement. After all, the disciples witnessing the transfiguration was an encouragement to them. So if you are struggling like the disciples were at the beginning of the passage, just remember that God knows us all individually. He knows what you will benefit from, and he knows what you can and what you can't handle. And he promises not to put you through anything that you can't handle. And he will give you those encouragements. He will give you those transfiguration moments if you keep your eyes open, keep praying and ask for them. And one day we'll be living on that mountaintop with Jesus. But for now, here, living in the valley is exactly where we should be. The valley is where the fertile soil is and where our plans and our faith can flourish. Our mission is to be here living our lives as an example of our faith. And finally, if you have the character of Peter, you're an impulsive character. I don't want you to look at that as a negative trait. Look at it as a gift from God. Use it for his benefit. And if you're struggling with that, pray that it can be channeled for God's glory, that that impulsiveness can be, can be channeled for his good. Just remember, those, of us that are, those people that are impulsive, they can make the best evangelists And they're the ones that can push God's word forward. Thank you. Just before we respond in worship, I just want to pick up a couple of things God has clearly been saying to us this morning. There's been a couple of common threads that have run through all the contributions and things that 
have been brought. Um, about, behold, there's something new springing up, a new day. And also about how when the cloud lifted, uh, all that was, remained was, was Jesus. And I want to pray that over us this morning. I, I don't know what your situations are, all of us. But, you know, amongst us here, maybe there are some that, that feel that there's been a bit of cloud over us. I want to pray that when that cloud lifts, all that we see is Jesus. And that will be like a new day for us. That would be like a road. Jesus came and said, I am the way. Hundreds of years after Isaiah wrote that, he said, I am the way. He is, in a way, that, that road in the, in, the, in the wilderness. So, yeah, shall we stand? Are we going to worship in a minute? I want to pray that over us. Father, I thank you that in Jesus we see so much fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. But it's so much more. He's the son of the living God, as Paul was brought to us this morning. So we come in that precious name, the name of Jesus. And for anyone who's going through situations that kind of feel like a cloud has come down upon them. I pray that that cloud would lift in Jesus' name. And all they'll see, all we will see, is Jesus and the radiance of his glory. And, and we'll be able to testify of his goodness like Jackie testified, of his faithfulness. You, King Jesus, are faithful and true. And we, we love you, we worship you. We long to give you glory with the way that we live. Help us, we pray, Holy Spirit, for his sake. Amen. Amen.